0: So just a note before we get going here on the text, um, we had small group th- this week. And um, for everyone who is able to attend, um, I make this uh, comment that, that I, I will try, perhaps, to send out an answer key um, to the moderators, at least. Um, to the small groups, um, you're probably uh, exasperated at trying to figure out my blanks. Um, uh, so there was one particular in there that, I, that is noteworthy. Um, uh, perhaps it was followed up, I think, maybe in Philippians this morning. But the idea, one of the, one of the um, blanks in the small group questions that gave our group uh, a bit of turmoil um, was uh, the, there was an asterisk, and it started with a B, and there was three blanks. And everyone's like, I don't know, be awesome, or you know, whatever it was. Um, the idea is, right, so um, we have, and we'll see this as we move forward. Once we finish uh, Genesis 1 through 11, our time there, we're going to move toward the book of Galatians. And, and that's an important piece for understanding the book of Galatians is the idea, and we've covered this before, but I, I think it's something we need to cover personally and corporately and as well through encouragements with one another of how we think about our life in relationship to Christ through the gospel. And an important piece of, of uh, getting it right is um, that... Again, we cannot, and in the, in the, in the question in small group was, if we cannot be Christ, we, we, we cannot. We cannot be him. And, and this gets back to the issue uh, of uh, kind of the, uh, it's all right, but perhaps not best. At least, I, I wouldn't recommend it. And that is the idea of reminding yourself, in any given set of circumstances, what would Jesus do? Um, it, it, it's it maybe helpful, but I think largely unhelpful. Because of what it yields in helpfulness, it clouds other aspects that are far more essential. And that is, what we'd want to do is not look at what he might have done, but look at what he has done. So that if we cannot be him imitating him, because we cannot, he alone is God and man. He alone can atone. He alone lie down his life for us. He alone is the Lord who is resurrected. He alone ascended to the Father's right hand. So if we cannot be him by being so motivated, because we cannot, what can we then do as his people? Or what should we do as all mankind under obligation? We ought, and here is the blank, just to give it away, believe upon him. That was the three blanks for small group. If we cannot be him, of which we cannot, what must we do? As creatures, we must believe upon him. It's essential that we get that right, lest we confuse the law and the gospel. That being him somehow equals redemption. We cannot be him. That's not a category. Redemption is believing upon him, holy as he is freely offered to you in the gospel. So that's a small group footnote for you. I'll do better at getting the, uh, the the answers out to the moderator, so that at least at the end, after we kick it around a bit, we, maybe we could fill in at least what my blank answers were. But here, as we jump to the text of Genesis, it's important to see in the genealogy to move on. This will actually be our last time in chapter 5. Again, I thought it would be one time. It's ending in three times, but that's okay. There's there's points along the way that we need to make note of. And here as we move on in chapter 5, for our last time here in the genealogy, is the shift in history is moving where God's face is being set against. Like, it's continuing to get kind of climactically worse, where God's face is continuing to be set against man, against mankind, against humankind on the earth. Why? Because man continues throughout the genealogy from chapter 4 and then on through history. Um, As history is moving forward, mankind continues to pursue evil. Just I'll give it away, but look forward in chapter 6, verse 5. This is where it's moving, and we'll look at this next week. But the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. That, that that's what the sto- That's where the story is moving, and and, and it's it, it's explained further in detail. And that every intention of the thoughts, every intent, his motivations, his ethics, what were driving him to act in time. The 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 things there. His intentions was only evil. Continually. So again, that's where we're moving through the genealogy. But as we look at the last portion of chapter 5, before we get to the great crescendo of events of the flood, I want to suggest that as we look at the last few moments here, assuming, once again, from last week, as we briefly mentioned, assuming, and I assume that with you, you with me, for the sake of argument here, that there are no gaps in the genealogical record here. So if we just went date by date, year by year, we're assuming there are no gaps here in the genealogical record. Then if we move forward through the genealogy, it is, and this is the piece I want you to kind of think and and provide a mental hook. Methuselah's 969th year. If you see it in verse 27, just to refresh you, we considered him a bit last week, but not particularly him, but the idea of time and how we use it and what we think of it and the stewarding responsibilities we have toward time. But now draw your attention to verse 27. Thus, all the days of Methuselah, were 969 years, and he died. So the last year of his life, according to verse 27, is the 969th year of his life, is the same year of the flood. Okay, so we're moving toward the event of the flood, the deluge. And it's the last year of Methuselah's life where the flood erupts. Now, how did I get there? Just briefly, a little bit on the math and the genealogy. Just to kind of piece that together. Because it's it's symbolic about the life period of Methuselah. You see, if you get there by adding the length of time between Methuselah's birth... So if you look in verse 25. In verse 25, when Methuselah had lived 187 years. So he's born by Enoch, uh, underneath Enoch's home in verse 21. But if you look at 187 years in verse 25... And then you move forward from Methuselah's birth to the date which Noah entered the ark. So, let, so I know this is difficult to piece together. You're like, okay, I, I'm already lost in the math. Just Okay, look, let, let me simplify. We're, 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 we're piecing together Methuselah to the point of the deluge, the flood. And I'm suggesting, as, as the biblical text is showing, if there's no gaps in the, in the genealogical record, we're going date by date by date. By the time that Methuselah ends in 969, this same year is the deluge. By taking his birth to the date that Noah entered the ark. So between his birth and his death is the same year of Noah entering the ark. How so? Once again, he lived 187 years in verse 25. Add to that verse 28 So look at look at verse 25 once again. Methuselah had lived 187 years, and he fathered Lamech. Now look at verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son. So again, you're taking the 187, you're adding now, because Methuselah is still alive, 182 years. 187 plus 182 is 369, right? Is that the math? You're correct. I'm correct on that, right? Straightforwardly. We're at year three sixty-nine in the life of Methuselah. Now, look over at Genesis 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. So it was in Noah's 600th year. So we're taking the 369 and we're adding Noah's 600 years to it. We arrive at the date of years to be 969 years. Now, oh, again, why is this to the point of laboring over it? Why, why is this even noteworthy? Well, I would mention to you that it's perhaps noteworthy from the standpoint that Methuselah's name translated means man of the spear. So you're taking the symbolism of Methuselah's name, man of the spear, so that some then suggest that he was named prophetically, Methuselah, by his father Enoch. And that perhaps God had revealed to Enoch that Methuselah's death would trigger or set into motion the spear of God's wrath upon mankind, which was to come through the flood. Do you see? So the godly man Enoch has a son, Methuselah, and he names him Methuselah. Now, again, are we sure that he names him Methuselah because he knows that he is the tip of the spear of God's wrath? Or is he just man of a spear for another etymological reason we just don't know? And so how are we piecing it together to him, that is Methuselah, being the tip of God's spear or the man of a spear and then saying for sure that it is therefore the date of the flood is tied to his prophetic announcement that, yes, Enoch, name him Methuselah for he is the tip of the spear of wrath. In his 969th year, when he dies, the spear of wrath will be unleashed. That is, the event of the flood. How do we know that that took place? Because we don't have a discussion, right, where we see it in the text and the genealogy. That Enoch heard from God that there was going to be a flood. And this is what was going to take place because the heart of man was going to continually get evil. And then he's going to name his son Methuselah to signify that prophetic word that then happens to be fulfilled in 969 years later. How do we know that? Well, we're not certain. But I give you this little text, and you might want to jot this down, and I'll read it for you so you don't have to turn there. But Jude, that is the, the small little epistle all the way uh, before the book of Revelation, Jude, verse 14 and 15, may help us, it may shed light on this passage for us in understanding, is Methuselah, that is the man, his name, is it a sign? Is he a sign That God's wrath is coming in the event of a flood to mankind because he is so named the tip of the spear or the man of the spear. And he is so named it prophetically by his godly father, Enoch. Jude, verses 14 and 15, says this, quote, It was also about these. This is Jude speaking. It was also about these. Now, who is he speaking about? He's talking about blasphemous and evil men. You can go back and look at the text itself and read Jude and you'll see who's he talking about. He's talking about evil men and blasphemers. So he says this, it was also about these blasphemers and evil men that Enoch, now you're like, oh, we're explicitly identifying Enoch. He goes on to say this, that Enoch, the seventh from Adam. So Judah's going all the way back to Enoch to talk about evil men and blasphemous men. And then he says this term. And now this is going to kind of cause your ears to spike a little bit. Like, oh, I found the connection. That maybe indeed Enoch did name Methuselah because of the event of the flood and God's patience. Maybe so. Because as Jude writes, it was also about these blasphemers and evil men that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. And we don't have that in our genealogical record, but it's Jude speaking back on these events by inspiration. That he prophesied, saying, quote, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. And to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So it appears as Jude helps us understand the genealogy and the life of Enoch as he says, this is what Enoch did. He preached He prophesied against the evil of his age. This is what he did. We understand the life of Enoch just a little bit better to recognize. Indeed, we knew he was a man of faith, for he was not found. God had taken him. And then we find out from the book of Hebrews. Why did God take him? He was a man of faith. He walked with God. And now Jude fleshes out a little bit more of the life of Enoch. What did he do in his walk of faith? He prophesied. He spoke. He preached against the ungodly of his age. And so, perhaps we are to infer from the preacher of righteousness, who was the man Enoch, that maybe he did so name Methuselah, his son. The tip of the spear, the man of the spear. Because at the end of his life, the same year that he dies, God is going to bring a spear of wrath to the entire world in the event of the flood. What then does it shed about not just Enoch, perhaps, as a preacher of righteousness and one who perhaps prophetically named his son, the tip of God's spear, what does it tell us about Methuselah a little bit more? Well, not much about the individual. Again, the scriptures remain silent on Methuselah. But it does say something about the duration of his life. Once again, we looked at it last week, just from a stewardship perspective, of how we use time. Given that our lives are so much shorter than 969 years, every minute counts. I think Methuselah would probably say the same thing. Every 969 years, every moment counts. But what do we know more about this period of 969 years, given what is prophetically said about Methuselah as a man of the tip of the spear, or the wrath, God's wrath of javelin, spear of wrath. It means that the 969 years is characterized as a period of God's patience. God set into motion a a period of patience for 969 years. He took Enoch, who had fathered Methuselah. Not sure if Enoch so prophetically named Methuselah for this event or not, but it does coincide with the event of the flood. But during that period that he gave Methuselah, those 969 years, they were characterized by a time of the preaching of righteousness to bring about repentance. Enoch is our first example. Here's Methuselah born in his home, so named And we know from Jude that during that period of time, Enoch preached against blasphemers and evil men. And this ministry of preaching and this ministry of prophecy continued for 969 years. To do what? To show God's patience toward the evil of mankind. There was a witness. There was a testimony. It's not like things were careening out of control. And there was no drawback. There was no restraint placed upon man at all. Even through the office of minister. Someone to preach. Someone to give prophetic voice. That all men everywhere should repent. And trust in God. This lasted for a period of 969 years to show forth God's patience. But as we move forward in the genealogy then from Methuselah for the 969 years of prophetic preaching or a time of patience where men are called back to repentance, we are now introduced in chapter 5, verse 28, to a man of righteousness. So from the preaching of righteousness in Enoch to the man of righteousness in Noah. Look at verse 28 as we uh, continue through the genealogical record here. Notice, when Lamech had lived 182 years... He fathered a son. And he called his son's name Noah. Saying, now this is important because this is the first prophetic word directly in the text regarding why someone was named. So we went through all of these names. And remember, it's a principle of life and death, 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 life and death. And what do we learn from it? That all men suffer the punishment of sin, that all in the genealogy are sinners because for the wages of sin is death live died live died live died live died live died and so named and so named and so named but we don't know why so named here with noah we do we are given an explicit statement on the naming of noah verse 29 he called his name noah and the explanation for this naming is saying quote out of the ground that the lord has cursed this one now you can see the proud father holding up the son Perhaps not the exact scene, but it's a mental helpful picture that that, Lamech is a proud father. And it moves him to say something that is of very great interest to us. Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one right here, shall bring us relief. He'll bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our Now, again, for the first ten minutes or so this morning, we have worked on inferring, trying to draw and connect the dots. We we jump over here, we take the the timeline, and we say, wow, that's interesting. Then we find out, is that true of Enoch? I'm not sure. Well, Jude seems to say so, and if Jude is saying so, it helps us understand Enoch. And if Enoch was really servicing that way, perhaps he did, it led him to name his son, so on and so forth. We have inferred, connected the dots to the meaning of Methuselah's name with the events of judgment connected to his name in the year he died so issued the flood. But here it's different. Here with Noah we are given an explicit statement. We don't need to infer. We don't need to piece the dots together. It's explicitly stated for our benefit to understand the meaning and mission of Noah's life. It's direct. It's given us by the lips of Lamech. Preserved for us by God and inscripturated through Moses. Now, what's peculiar about the name Noah and the subsequent explanation provided us about Noah by Lamech, his father, and this is important for us to think about, they just don't fit together. So the name Noah, I'm going to name you Noah. For the reason, that is the rationale behind why I would name you Noah, is this. You will bring us relief from the toil of our hands and the life of the curse of the ground. But the name Noah doesn't mean relief. So in other words, read with me with the text. Just to piece this together, it's, it's very peculiar. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. And then he tells us why, out of the ground. This is why, from out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief. But again, there are other words in Hebrew for rest and other words for relief that just are not here spoken. Noteworthy, if you have uh, ESV, uh, ESV uh, text in, in your English translation, you're using it this morning. I didn't look at the NIV. I think uh, many of you like the NIV translation and so on and so forth. I didn't look at it, but I just happen to have an ESV for myself. And if you look down on a footnote on five off of relief, at least in, in my uh, English text at the bottom, it, it says something like, it sounds like relief. F- fair enough. Um, it, it, it does sound like relief, but, but it, so it's simply associated with relief by phonetics, or, or it sounds like a Hebrew word that maybe you read and you thought, oh, that sounds like rest. But again, it doesn't mean rest. So, how do we make sense of Lamech's prophecy? Because again, he, he, this one right here, I'm going to name you Noah because you, this one, will bring us rest. How do we make sense of Lamech's prophetic statement here? And the answer is twofold. I'm going to give you two options for the idea, and and, and, I'll, and, I'll, and I'll tip my scale um, uh, one way or another. But, but uh, let me suggest there's, there's, there's twofold answer to make sense of Lamech's prophecy that it, that goes beyond simply, well, the word, the name Noah means rest. That would make sense. He's going to bring us rest because his name is Noah. No, it doesn't work like that. Again, it, it, it may sound like rest, but it isn't the term for So how do we make sense of Lamech's anticipation here with his son that he named Noah? The first of our twofold options, number one, is that Lamech's hope is misplaced. Here the thought is that Lamech, now now think about how how Lamech, I'm going to provide how Lamech could have gotten in a position to perhaps have misplaced hope when he looked at the birth of his son? How could he get there? What, what, what drove him to... to uh, uh, sure, a father overstates the glory of his son at some point in time. You see it, it we, we play Little League Baseball. It, it happens all the time. A father overstates the glory of his son. Um, uh, you, you know, and you can go to any sport, you go to any competition with any child Anywhere. Um, man, you could even compete over manners. Whatever it is, a, child, a parent tends to, ooh, 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 on a child. Sure, that's very natural. It's very uh, fraternal, paternal, it's to, to, to overstate your child's excellence. But it's more than that. It's more than just the, the gusto, the joy, the drive that a father has as he has a son. It's more than that. It's more thoughtful than that for Lamech. How so? Well, consider that Lamech was alive during the translation of Enoch into glory. J- jump over in the text, verse 21, when Enoch had lived 60, uh, 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And the, in, in the wonderful story here, uh, Enoch walked with God. That's what we know about him as a man. He walked with God. And then Jude tells us that he was a preacher of great righteousness. And after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, he had other sons and daughters. That's all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Don't forget. Don't just move on, but meditate. Because Enoch walked with God. And then he was not. For God took him. Now there's an overlap if you go through verse 25 and you add up the years in verse 26 of Lamech. So in other words, Lamech, the man, was alive during the translation of Enoch into glory. And perhaps he was so moved to believe that the day of God's promise being fulfilled was now. It was indeed extraordinary. Hebrews 11 builds on the story of Enoch as a man who pleased God. For without faith, it's, even, it's just utterly impossible to please God. A- and preserve for us is the story of Enoch. How much more so right then and there within the family was the story of Enoch treasured? Enoch is not with us any longer. Where did he go? Oh, son, God took him. Why? Because he loved God. God loved him. He walked by faith. So also I wish he would, as dad walks by faith. The story of Enoch being fresh in the mind of Lamech, perhaps he was moved to believe that God's promise of Deliverance was being so fulfilled, and now, the next ev- event in the in the uh, in the genealogy is the birth of his own son. Perhaps he is so moved to think that Noah is the blessed seed who will turn back the curse. I'm going to name you Noah. For you will bring us rest. I just know it. You will bring us rest from our toils. Martin Luther makes a comment that perhaps is interesting here as well. Luther notes this. He says, quote, thus after Lamech, and now listen to the way that he describes a thought on Lamech's mind. He says, thus after Lamech has seen that his grandfather, his own grandfather, has been taken away to paradise without pain, without sickness, and apart from death. He assumes that paradise, with all of its glory, will follow at once. It is his opinion that Noah is the promised seed and that he will bring about the restoration of the world. End quote. You see, and it's not that uh, hard to believe that, that a person of faith such, such, such as Lamech, that we, we can assume of him, coming from, from Enoch, Methuselah, to, uh, to, to Lamech, that he would be a man of faith. That he would anticipate that God's deliverance through these events hold fast to the promise of Genesis 3.15 of grace. But as we pair Lamech with Eve and with our own faith, we're often earnest, but wrongfully earnest. Headlong in the promises of God. Remember Eve at the birth of Cain. Full of anticipation and hope. Cain was to be the blessed seed. She knew it. And as the story unfolds, there's nothing but heartache for Eve in a misplaced faith. And then it comes at the end. you remember when Seth is born to her? She remembers, I have a son. And the language changes from I have a man at the birth of Cain to I have an offspring. I have a seedling that coordinates with God's promise to her. And she never forgets the death of Abel as a grieving mother. Again, how often our faith is self-interpreting how we look at providence and interpret it in our favor, twisting every pass in order to find the best route to our ends. Perhaps this is Lamech, who wrongfully assigned grandeur to Noah that wasn't his. Perhaps it wouldn't be, again, beyond the bounds, given the story of Eve and Cain. But we do have a second option on the table, and, and, and I, do, I, I tend to think uh, along these lines, of option number two, perhaps, that we could say, secondly, that Lamech's prophecy is fulfilled in the sense that Noah does indeed bring about rest for mankind. That, that Noah is a man who establishes rest in the earth, in some measure, significantly so. And that is, Noah does bring about rest through number two, reinstating God's honor among humankind he brings about achieving rest through reinstating God's honor among mankind look with me and this is just going to jump into our our texts that are coming up but I want you to see how this is and and, uh, where we get this idea jump over in chapter 8 if you would And we skip over the flood event. Um, Don't you worry, we'll go piece by piece, step by step. So we're not skipping. But if you'll jump ahead just to chapter 8, real quick, just real quick, and we'll see how can we get the idea that that Noah did fulfill this word of his father. And, and, And in many ways, unbeknownst to Lamech. But God using it, that indeed Noah did bring about rest. Look at verse 20. Now the flood event has taken place. Now here you approach verse 20. Then Noah built an altar. That's so significant. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. And took some of every clean animal. Some of every clean bird. And he offered burnt offerings on that altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest... Cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons. What's striking about the fulfillment of the prophecy regarding Noah is his movement to reinstate God's honor immediately upon deliverance from the flood. You see, if you think about that for a moment, you meditate on this text, you're drawn to the thought, immediately drawn to the thought that Noah's first recorded move and grateful response to God's deliverance is corporate worship. Think about that. His very first move in grateful response for God's deliverance is corporate worship worship. Noah knew that the people of God were to be a worshiping people. They were to offer their praise, their possessions. They were to offer their lives to him in an attitude of holy gratitude. You see, the rightful motivation for worship must be learned by mom and dad, by individual Christian. The rightful motivation for worship must be learned, and then it must be taught. What is the rightful motivation for drawing near to God? Gratitude for his deliverance. the magnificent heidelberg catechism i don't use that just to be verbose it is if you if you if you work through the heidelberg catechism you will agree i'm sure it's magnificent line by line item by item thought after thought but the construction of the heidelberg catechism is structured to instruct us it is structured in three in the life of human beings Guilt, grace, and gratitude. This is the response of God's people. When they realize their guilt, when they experience his redeeming grace, their lives of gratitude flow forward. That is why you're here today. Because the alarm went off, and you're like, well, gotta go. The the alarm does go off, yes. And then, you see, you get to go. Because you've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. To do what? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called me out of said darkness and into his marvelous light. This is what Noah did. There's land. What should we do? Build a house. No. Build an altar. Th- that's the, it's, the, it's, the, it's the movement of gratitude. Because we are his people that have been delivered. And it's in this sense the deliverance of Noah. Because if you look at the text, notice as a result of God's rightful honor being restored through Noah and his family. He reestablishes. This is who's left. This is the humanity now. Here's the clear stage for the glory of God and his redemptive program. And it begins here with us as a family. What will we do? Reinstate his honor. That is what we will do. That is what we must do. For we're grateful for his redemption and, and so I build an altar. I offer burnt offerings. The Lord smelled it. Pick up in verse 24, 21. He smelled it, and it pleased him. And he said, I will never again curse. I will never again strike. And then he turned in verse 9 and blessed. You see, the response from heaven for man's gratitude is that he will never again curse the ground because of mankind. And so one author then concludes this way, I think is helpful. He says, quote, human life under the curse was also painful to God. And so God used Noah as part of his plan to relieve the world of pain and toil, but perhaps not in the way Lamech. Looking at it from this vantage point, it does seem that it makes sense to us in the prophecy of Noah's name and the proud father who gave it. Whether Lamech was onto something and he knew it, whether he was onto something and didn't know it, Noah does bring relief as promised by averting any future destruction of humankind. So what do we learn from Noah's life in the comments of prophecy? We have this statement of his father and we have a few things we can piece together from chapter 8. What do we learn? I couldn't say it better and I don't want to steal it so I have to quote it. It's from Calvin. He's too good to steal. You'd know it right away. Calvin writes, after God delivered him, Noah is not ungrateful. But he knows that the purpose was that there would still be a people in the world to celebrate God's awesome name. So, too, let us learn from Noah's example. To lift our hearts straightway to God and show by our deeds that we possess nothing in this life except what comes from His mercy. Let us pray.